Jiu-Jitsu? Jiu-Jitsu is no joke. It takes years to master. Martial arts are a vehicle for developing your human potential. And nothing in my life has ever put me in face with reality better than Jiu-Jitsu. Training in BJJ offers a powerful lens through which to examine some primary human concerns. Truth versus delusion, self-knowledge, ethics, and overcoming fear. There's more, there's more philosophy in our mats than actually uh, uh, philosophy in any Ivy League school. Welcome to philosophy. What up, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Jilosophy. My name is Oli. My name is Iki. And how's it going, my bro? I'm chilling like a villain. How Fantastic. Are you doing? Yeah, I'm all good. I'm all good. <laughs> cool. Keen to get another guest, another guest onto the Jilosophy podcast. Yes, and today I'm more than excited to introduce you guys with Scott Young. Hey, Scott, how are you doing? Hey, well, it's great to be here. Lovely. Well, listen, Scott, I'm going to kick things off by asking the question we ask everyone that comes on the Jilosophy podcast, which is, how did you get into jujitsu? <laughs> I don't know the first thing about jujitsu, so this is going to be a really short episode, you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that concludes our broadcast day. Um, okay, so you've never right, done jujitsu. See you later. All right, bye. exactly. You've never done jujitsu in your life, which begs the question: nope. What do you do? So, uh, if there is any way to introduce me, I guess I am a writer. I've been writing for about fifteen years on my blog and the thing I guess I'm sort of known for is taking on weird and unusual self-education projects that includes uh, the MIT challenge which was me trying to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in 12 months. Uh, I did a project with a friend where we went to four different countries to learn Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, Chinese and Korean uh, in a year and I've also learned things like portrait drawing and quantum mechanics and I recently published a book called Ultra Learning which is talking about not only my own projects but many other people who've done really cool things to teach themselves hard skills quickly and effectively and kind of exploring the science behind how you can learn things better. It's pretty cool. Like it a... sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so for those that have tuned in, for those that are listening and they've just heard you talk about learning four languages, learning quantum mechanics, MIT, um, first question, were you successful? Well, I think that I was successful according to the standards I set. I think it's a little bit hard to dis define successful in unequivocal terms. I mean, some people would define fluency as being you can speak every language, you know, f without any mistakes and without any accent. Whereas for me, I, I just define these things practically. You know, we were able to, in the MIT challenge, I was able to pass the final exams. And so I felt like I learned the content that was taught in that degree. For the language learning trip, we were able to make friends, live in these countries, have conversations with people, even though we often made mistakes and, you know, often had little hiccups, but it was, it was pretty good. I would consider that a great success. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where does this desire to learn come from? Because, think, yeah, because I've always been interested in learning. Like, I think it's something that is kind of deep in my personality, um, learning things and wanting to try new stuff. I think I'm very lucky because I kind of got onto this path that let me do this for a living <laughs> in a way which is this is not a job that most people have so this is something that was very interesting for me and so for about yeah about 10 years I was just um, doing these kinds of projects and uh, able to really throw myself into them so I, I do think that we all have things that we like 
doing and sources of skill and confidence. Like, I mean, this is a jujitsu podcast. I'm imagining there's a lot of people here who are avid martial artists, but I think uh, it's, it's something exciting to be able to deconstruct the learning process itself so that you can apply it and take that confidence that maybe you built in one area and apply it to something totally different, whether it's, you know, quantum mechanics or learning Spanish or, or whatever it is. Is that kind of like a, a top level cheat sheet, main things to know when you're trying to take on such a, a, an ambitious task of learning? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always better the more deeply you understand the learning process, the more you can kind of figure out why things work when they work and why they don't work when they don't work and figure out little tricks you can do to accelerate things in places. Some of the basic tips that I usually give out is one of them is this idea of directness, which is that um, we tend to think of skills in these really broad categories. So like I'm learning jujitsu, but you're never learning jujitsu. You're learning like a specific way of moving your arm or dealing with a specific situation. And so the details of how you practice this skill often translate over to how you're actually applying it. So if you're in the dojo and you're fighting, uh, that you're gonna learn the skill in a little bit of a different way than if you were you know, trying to use it to defend yourself on the streets or if you were in a competition or, or something like that. And so this idea of practicing the skill directly in the situation you care about is very important. And it's kind of counterintuitive because the way we've been taught to think about learning our entire lives is the complete opposite where you get put in a room with a bunch of desks and someone talks to you about the idea and you never actually apply it. And so we often, I think, mistakenly use that as the exemplar of how to learn well, when really the way we learn most skills in our lives is by doing them and by interacting with the real situations that matter. So that would be one tip. There's other ideas involving things like retrieval. So if you have to study for a test, for instance, it's way better to practice remembering the information than just looking it over and over again, which is what most students do. Um, getting feedback is really important. It's really important to try to understand what you're learning, especially for conceptual subjects. And so some there's some tips that are more specific to certain things. So if we want to talk about language learning. I have a whole bunch of language learning specific tips, but I think the more you understand the process of learning generally the the easier it is to kind of figure out okay well this is what would be difficult about doing this and this is how i'd break it down this is so interesting i, I reposted the quote i read the other day i think it was from um, i want to say confucius and it was okay. um i hear something i forget it i see something i remember it i do something i understand it and it's really weird that i reposted that and, you, and you're talking about it. it's almost like the act of doing the actual like jumping in and, and the physical act and is a better understanding than just someone I guess speaking. Well, I to mean, you. I don't. I don't think I need to explain to anyone here that you can't learn martial arts by reading. The book. <laughs> but we often make that mistake that just that, that things that seem intellectual, they're actually skills, right? So a language would be an example of that. But speaking a language, we tend to view it as okay. Well, I have to memorize these words and I have to um, do these grammar exercises, and that's a component of it for sure. But I think we often ignore the fact that. Why do you learn a language? You learn it to communicate, right? Or you learn it to, you know, interact with a culture or to sort of immerse yourself. And so this this disconnect between often what we're doing when we want to learn something and what we actually need to do to um, to perform in the real situation can create problems. And so that was one of the things that I talked about in my book. I did a whole chapter on the research on transfer because 
um, it is something that I think people underrate. And so I, I'm somewhat critical of Duolingo in the book because you know, not that Duolingo isn't fun, but it's, you know, it's not really the real thing when it comes to speaking a language. And very often you learn a lot of things that you can do the Duolingo problems, no problem. And then, you know, you, your first trip to Paris and you're all of a sudden like, well, I was doing this for six months. Why can't I, <laughs> why can't I do very much uh, yeah, with yeah. this language? So I think that that can apply to many, many areas. And so it's just one idea, but I think it's an important one when it comes to learning. We had a, we had a friend, didn't we? Yeah. We got a friend of ours called John Jitsu, um, not real name, mm -hmm. more of a nickname, <laughs> co-founder of this podcast. He he um, learned Portuguese, and he said something that he did is um, he used to do like an online chat function where a Portuguese yeah. person would would come on and then he'd like converse with them. Yeah. And he said that that experience. But then one another thing that helped him a lot is like um, he even though Portuguese is my first language, he mm -hmm. knows more jujitsu terms than I because he would. That try to speak Portuguese specifically for jiu-jitsu yeah, yeah, with yeah. jiu-jitsu people all the time. Like yeah. in the gym, he would force himself to speak Portuguese. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's well, good. I think I think that's a really good example too of how um, how specific it is when you're learning things because. Again, you think about like learning Portuguese, but there's no learning Portuguese. You're learning all these different words. You're learning these mm. very specific types of skills and context. And so, you know, as an example, like when my friend and I were on our trip. Um, we would learn like words that were very specific to our kind of mm -hmm. project and our process. So like learning the word for like doing a recording because we were making little videos at the time. It was yeah. like something we learned the first day, whereas like there's no, you know, Spanish textbook where grabar is going to be like the first thing that you learn mm -hmm. in the first day because it's like a, it's that's an intermediate word. Why would you need to know like video recording? And so I think um, that's one of the things that I think there is a benefit from trying to expose yourself to real situations earlier than maybe you would feel comfortable with just because uh, it's very difficult to get that right. It's very difficult to anticipate in advance that I'm going to need to know the word grabar in Spanish before I know like, you know, farm animals or something sure. that they often put in books on the first page. At a at an interesting experience a few days ago. So when I read the book, I said, okay, let me pick a skill that is just fun and a skill that is like kind of useful in life. So I, speak, I picked uh, learning character animation in After Effects and uh, okay. learning how to slackline. Okay. So I started slacklining and my, my, my only goal was just to walk from one side to the other, just like two meters distance. It took me about, using the book, it took me like 10 days to just walk the line and I was like, oh my God. But then a few days ago, I took two friends to the, to the park to, to practice. And I just introduced them to the slack line. But the thing is, because I broke down every single step so much, they learned it so much faster than me, what it took me like three days to do. But then one of them just went up to the line and he jumped on it and he did a trick that he saw on YouTube. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oh my God, why haven't I thought of doing a trick? Like if I, if I tried a trick, it might work, but it was more of that thing of like, I started becoming so stale and so focused on what exactly do I have to understand sort of like uh, trying to almost uh, put things too much into theory after I understood yeah. the basics yeah yeah I think uh, there's also some stuff this isn't something that I talked about in the book very much but um, there's a kind of model that you can think of for learning things in terms of solving a problem and there's also a model where you can think in terms of play and it's interesting because the distinction, I don't draw a really big one in the book, but 
uh, solving a problem is like I am trying to walk from one end of the slack line to the other. And so all of my en energy and attention is how do I accomplish that particular goal? But then there could be a like, I'm going to put the slack line there and just like see what I can do, right? Which is sort of more your friend's attitude. And they have different strengths and weaknesses. I think this, the problem solving approach is often better when you really care about that outcome. So if like going from one end to the other was like really, really important for you, yeah. then the problem solving approach is probably better. And so, you know, if you're trying to pass an exam, like trying to pass the exam is probably better than just doing random things. But at the same time, they've, they've found that um, playing where you don't really have an outcome, you just want to see what you can do is often better for kind of getting a more flexible, deeper way of understanding it. Because when you're solving a problem, you're kind of working backwards from like, I have to be able to do this. So I'm going to do exactly this thing to get up to there. Whereas when you're playing, you're kind of exploring different things you can do. And then when you later decide, oh, I want to do this, you have tried a lot of different things. So, um, you know, the way I think about this is mathematics. And one of the chapters of the book, I talk about Richard Feynman. Mm -hmm. And he, I think, really characterized, not that he wasn't good at problem solving, but this kind of playful approach to mathematics, which, um, you know, most people, it's just a list of homework problems you have to solve. But he had like this kind of knack for, you know, he would be thinking about some really deep problem. He won a Nobel Prize in, in physics for those who aren't familiar with him. But he he would work on like some super deep problem about, you know, quantum electrodynamics. And then he would be like sitting in the cafeteria and like wondering like, you know, how can you model like a plate spinning? You know, it's like wobbling or something, which is a really, you know, unimportant kind of problem. And I think the the sort of attitude of like, what could you do or how can you figure that out or, or, or just sort of trying to see what you can do with these problems gave him a breadth that I think um, is, is harder to do when you're only just trying to solve problems. You're only trying to just get through the next homework assignment. And so I think having a playful attitude can often be beneficial. So instead of, you know, trying to learn a language to see, okay, well, I have to be able to speak this, but you learn a new phrase. Let's say you learn a new way of saying a basic sentence and like, how many different sentences can I say using this basic sort of template um, and so I often do that if I'm like starting to learn a new language and you learn like you know romance languages you often start with the like I am we are you know you are because it's conjugated differently and so it'll often be the case you get a few verbs and you just like say tons of random things with the tutor just be like am I getting this right am I getting this right and you try lots of different stuff and I think that can often be beneficial because it uh, it shows you what's possible and what things you can do and it's like no actually that doesn't work for this reason and then and then you learn something and so um a playful approach uh is something that also i think is really valuable when learning things that's what i do whenever french comes up like <laughs> i i have like the i am we are she is yeah. and i just try and throw that at everything <laughs> like, yeah um, and it works surprisingly well. I think you can get a lot of versatility out of mastering a few basic things too. I think that's another thing, you know, speaking about language learning that um, we can turn it into this task that's really formidable, but you'd be surprised how much you can communicate with like a handful of just basic phrase templates and then occasionally using Google Translate to look up like a noun or verb that you need. Um, you can go quite far. You can actually like get through a lot of practical situations uh, that way. And so it's it's often beneficial to look at it like that rather than, oh my God, I have to memorize 50,000 words before before I can um, speak this language. I'm, I'm keen to try and, and pull this into a, a jujitsu context yeah. because it because it is so applicable. Um, mm -hmm. I suppose one of the things I want to, there's two questions I really want to focus on. How important are the, the basic fundamentals understanding of something? And then 
how do you break that down into the complex nature of a, of a huge project? So the daunting task of there are just so many variables, so many endless holes that you can fall down, so much complexity versus how important is it to start with the core basic understanding of what you're dealing with? So I think there's two ways you can think about it. I think it's undoubtedly clear to me that you know you can't always start with the most difficult aspect of it and this is i would say especially true of physical skills right like um you know i i'm not into martial arts so I, i'm risking i'm, I'm not going to try to make too many examples there because i'm going to show the limits of my understanding but i like uh, skiing right and everyone knows there's the bunny hill and there's the double black diamond runs you don't go down the double black diamond run your first time on a ski hill not only is that really bad advice if you were uh, trying to uh, not die but also uh, you know it's you're, you're not going to be able to handle it right it's it's way too difficult and this is true of lots of other skills so the key to learning is how do I find some kind of way in how do I start and so you know with skiing there's the kind of obvious like you're just going to be getting steeper and steeper and having more obstacles and more you know turning and different kinds of snow conditions and so the starting point is you're doing those green runs on the bunny hill and then you get better at that and you do some green runs and then you do some blue runs and, and you're trying more and more things right so i think that is undoubtedly true the thing that i i caution is sometimes the thing that you want to do has a certain minimum complexity and so you're kind of forced to play in the shallow end so to speak to to figure it out and this is where it can be kind become kind of a problem because you're not able to do the thing you really want to do yet. Um, and so anything that you do is going to be somewhat artificial or somewhat contrived. Like, uh, you know, if you're just starting out programming and you want to make, you know, the next Google, but you're making some little hangman game, like, well, you don't really care about the hangman game. Maybe it's just something you're doing to learn programming. But I think there's different ways you can approach it. And I tend to favor what I'll call like the more organic approach where you find something that is easier it's definitely a small project it's definitely not too complicated for where you're at but it it has the kind of accomplishes some of the goals and has some of the look and feel of something you would be really trying to do so to contrast that with a, an approach which i think is often common and i'm not as big a fan of which is to begin with kind of isolated drills and then just to do all those drills and then finally build it into the sort of finished product and I tend to approach the kind of organic, you start with a seed and you kind of grow the plant from there rather than let's take the big plant in pieces and stitch it all together later, which um, t is often the way that they t teach things in formal education. So they'll focus on, okay, well, we need to master these basics. So I'm gonna give you a bunch of irrelevant problems that you have to solve because I know down the road, you're gonna need to have those basics mastered in order to be able to do the thing you really wanna do. And I, I tend to approach it differently of what's something that's like you can kind of do that's sort of interesting, but is still of a small enough level of complexity that um, it's manageable. So for learning a language, having a really simple, like, you know, how are you today? My name is this. What's the weather like? You know, oh, you like this kind of conversation is, yeah, it's artificial. It's a little bit contrived, but I think it's better than, okay, I'm going to master all the words first, or I'm going to like, you know, just spend all my time doing grammar exercises or just spend all my time um, working on some details of pronunciation before I try to have that conversation. And similarly, I think, um, 
it's often beneficial to use sort of little crutches. So we think about riding a bicycle and you have either the training wheels or you have something else to like, you know, make it so it's not as hard to fall over on the bike. And yeah, it does make it artificial. Once you take the training wheels off, the, the bike suddenly becomes less stable and you have to work on that. But at the same time, it, it lets you get started. And so that can also be something to look at is like, what is a way you can kind of scaffold your activity? Um, I know I'm using language learning a lot, but like for me with beginning a language learning process, using Google Translate to like fill in gaps is huge because of course I can't have a conversation yet. I don't know any words, but if I know enough, like, a, you know, I, I learned like a couple phrases here and there, and then I just try to again, like, okay, well, let's try it, but substitute this verb or substitute this noun. And I just try it again and again you can get a lot of uh, combinations and a lot of versatility there. And so, you know, similarly, if you're trying to learn programming, um, figuring out like, well, what would be like a very simple, small, little cool project you can make? Like, could I make, yeah, as I said, hangman, or could I make something that goes through a maze? And maybe I wanna make something a lot more elaborate, but at least this is a kind of small self-contained little task that has some resemblance to the real thing that you're trying to do later, as opposed to just, okay, well, I guess I have to work through all the, you know, drills and exercises in this book before I get started, which not only delays the task of actually getting started and doing things, but often can make those transfer issues harder because you have all these sort of random skills that you've built up, but you've never actually applied them and used them in a situation yet. Yeah, that's very mm -hmm. interesting. Very interesting. I think one of the mass appeals of, of jujitsu is that you can dive straight in, but one sure. of the, the big like turnoffs, I guess, is that it then op it opens up in front of you and it's almost yeah. like too much and the, the learning curve especially in jiu-jitsu is, is a very steep one because a lot of the jiu-jitsu techniques are almost like a one-size-fits-all because of the way that gyms are set up um your first day you could start anywhere on a six-month roadmap that is kind mm -hmm. of cycling through a, a series of it's segmented but each one is endless possibilities like to break it down you have the fight starts on your feet so you have takedowns you have guard which is the guy on the bottom and then you have passing guy which is the guy on the top but then there are infinite number of like pins and positions and submissions and transitions that like can be in there so your first day you may learn one specific bit and then you may jump on the wheel that you have to go all the way around to get back to the point you started and then from there you realize you then have to continue to go and then there's almost too much options and i think it's just the way that a gym is set up that that it's 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 hard to give a bespoke learning experience to each person that comes in well you're you're really describing i think the the whole problem of education generally right um and, you know i sometimes get brought onto podcasts and people want to say like well given your book like how would you change the entire education or school system and i'm much less optimistic about that like my my focus is much more on the learner and it's because as an institution education has a lot of constraints that make it the way it is so you know what you mentioned is just one of them the fact that you have one instructor to many students and you have to have a sort of set curriculum means that you're not always going to be learning maybe what's most beneficial for you to be learning right at that moment um you know some of the students are going to be little prodigies and they're going to zoom along and then maybe you're going to be struggling and so it's either too fast or too slow or it's not teaching you exactly what you need to teach and that's i think just 
arising from that constraint of I have to run a school and I have to teach this curriculum to a bunch of people. And that's just going to be the truth of most courses that you take are going to be like that. Similarly, I think uh, in a lot of formal education, we place a lot of emphasis on um, creating a kind of universal standard. So grades and ranking everyone, right? I know that, that they do that in martial arts as well with belts and various things as well. But, and that for, serves an important function. You know, if the reason you went to the school is because you want to be able to say, okay, I'm X level at a glance and that person just immediately understands what you're talking about, then it really helps if everyone learned the same stuff, right? And everyone did, the, did it the same way and did the same test. Um, but that can also create tension. So, you know, one of the things I noticed when learning a language is that um, there's a tension often between reaching a formal level of proficiency so that you get a certain score on a particular fluency test and being able to, you know, speak in you know, situations that you care about. Not to say those goals are, don't have any overlap. Obviously, they overlap quite a bit. Otherwise, there would be no point in having the test. But they don't overlap maybe as much as some people think they do. They're not. They're certainly not total overlap. And so you can definitely get in a situation where you, you know, are you studying for the test or are you studying for real life? And I think that's true not only in school, but literally any other situation where you're dealing with that. And so my approach in ultra learning is not to really suggest that there's one optimal solution for all people in all situations, but to recognize that just because someone made a school around it does not necessarily mean that that is, you know, that is the perfected state of education and like there's no other way that you could do that or there's no possibility of doing it better than that uh, because of these constraints that I think are kind of inherent in, in these institutions. It's kind of interesting actually because I was thinking if, if you if you want to be a translator then yeah. you need to be at a certain level right because there are situations where like important stuff relies on you knowing what's being spoken about yeah. right like if you get a word wrong in a legal like contract or in like some kind of like discussion then that's like quite important the interesting thing about like our jujitsu belts is that you've highlighted the point which is we don't from school to school we don't all learn the same curriculum jujitsu is very much like a free-flowing thing and it very much depends on your coach and your and his culture or her culture um and one blue belt to the next could be very very different the thing that keeps a consistency is almost like the fact that that is the coach's blue belt he's put his name to it so you are a product of them so it keeps their level quite high and it's kind of looked down on in the community if there's like someone that doesn't deserve that belt or isn't of a certain standard but then at the same time it's very hard to quantify it's kind of created this weird dichotomy of like what is the belt because some think, people don't particularly care but others really do i think one one interesting thing about jiu-jitsu is like um it's uh it leaves very little space for guessing it's like uh you're a blue belt you're a blue belt display it by having a situation where you both can face each other pushing it to the level where you're almost about to hurt each other and then one taps out before an arm mm -hmm. breaks or so so that gives that gives good feedback, like straight straight up feedback in terms of this is my level. These are the things I can go work on, and they vary from person to person because mm. someone might be more flexible, another person is more strong, so they can suit the technique towards them. And as far I think as as the person gets better and ahead, they can start understanding. Oh, this works for me. This doesn't work for me. Kind of thing mm. more and more. 
it's, it's well, interesting. I think what this, uh, on, I was just going to say, what I think this shows is just how how multifaceted uh, it, it can really be. So when you get into the question of like learning something like jujitsu, um, it, it's not always obvious at first how there's lots of different things that you're trying to accomplish with that. Like, I want to be able to win in tournaments. I want to be able to spar. I want to like be able to defend myself on the yeah. streets. I want to be able to uh, have this belt and you know have this kind of accomplishment that I can take around to different places. And it isn't to say that those goals don't overlap. Uh, they certainly overlap uh, considerably. But at the same time, you can sometimes recognize situations where there can be a tension, right? There can be a tension between uh, how do we standardize this versus how do I individualize it? Or there can be a tension between how do I, um, you know, perform in one situation versus how do I perform in another situation? You know, um, it, it's often, it's interesting to look at it like that. I, again, I don't know much about jujitsu, but uh, one thing I've done a little bit of, uh, I'm not very good at it, but I, I did a little bit of is uh, salsa dancing. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is that some people go into it exclusively to do social dancing, which is where you go to like a little party and you just dance with strangers and stuff. And then other people do it to compete. So they go into like choreographed, they have a partner and they practice a dance routine and they do this kind of thing. And it's interesting how much those often diverge. Obviously they, they rely on the same basic skills, but in a choreographed routine, the person knows what you're gonna be doing. So the main thing is just getting it flawless and perfect. Whereas social dancing, mostly what you're trying to do is trying to communicate to your partner, okay, we're gonna do a turn right now. <laughs> and uh, it, it can be, there can be a tension between those two goals. And so that I think is another tip I would give people is the more you can think about what is the, what is the context that this skill is gonna be used and what do I care about primarily, you can sometimes shift how you're practicing to deal with that. So if you primarily went into jujitsu because you wanna you know, defend yourself on the streets, I don't know what you would be doing, but you may be gonna be approaching it a little differently when this guy might have a knife or might hit you with a beer bottle or something than if you were just, okay, we're in a tournament situation and we're both wearing the same clothes and I can trust this person isn't gonna, you know, claw my eyes out or something yeah. like that in the middle of the match it's, I mean they, they do make a difference I think it's it's so funny you may not know much about jiu-jitsu but you pretty much nailed like a big argument in the jiu-jitsu community which <laughs> which which is this idea of jiu-jitsu for self-defense um and then sport jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu for yeah. competition as well and the two are massively different and there's a big like debate around jiu-jitsu was a martial art primarily set up for self-defense um there is the sport version which is you train and you compete tactically for winning a competition and then there are those that claim that, that they're the same um, those that claim that actually if you concentrate too much on the sport you lose that self-defense mechanism um, it's a big it's pretty big significant well, debate that I goes mean, on i think my main point is just that this is true not in just jujitsu but everywhere and that we tend to make this kind of uh we conflate things too easily like we tend to say oh well i'm good at x and, or I've learned X and you construe it in a broad way, but really what you've actually learned is often much more specific. So I'll give an example from a domain I haven't talked about, uh, which is um, uh, drawing. So I did a portrait drawing uh, challenge. This is one of the things I talked about in the book. A little bit hard to talk about on a podcast, but if you want to check out my website, you can see uh, what my one month progress we'll, was. We'll trust you. Decide for yourself whether it was good. But one of the things that I focused on there was I, I wanted to have the goal of producing like as realistic and accurate a kind of pencil drawing that I could after the end of the month. 
However, it's it's interesting how many things that omits. So one of the things it omits is that I didn't focus on color at all. So I think that there is some transfer to being able to paint. Obviously, they're both doing things realistically, but there's a lot of differences too. And also, uh, one of the things that I didn't do was focus on doing it quickly. So the actual thing you have to go through when you're drawing something where you want to draw it like extremely realistically, but you have, let's say, maybe six hours to draw it, um, you can rely on completely different methods, completely different process than do a sketch of this person's face in five minutes and have it look pretty good. It's, it's funny how those things are not the same. And so this is just an example, I think, of not to say that one is better than the other. Like I'm, I'm not here to weigh in on the sport versus street martial art <laughs> debate. I don't have any I don't have any stake in that. But just to point out that um, that these, these differences do happen. And so I don't think, again, that there's there is some overlap. So it's certainly the case if you practice one, you'd probably be better at the other. But I think at the same time, um, the more you can go into it aware of that then you can start thinking of mm, i'm learning this to do this how can i align what i'm doing so that when i'm actually practicing has a maximal benefit you know programmers often have this situation where you learn in school a lot of um, solo projects where you're you know you write code from scratch to do something on your own and then you go and you work in the world and most of what you're doing is reading other people's terrible code figuring out why it doesn't work and then making some small fix to it and you know clearly those involve different skills right they overlap but they involve different skills and so i think uh, you know i'm beating a dead horse at this point but i think if you can appreciate that um you, you're you'll be able to make much better decisions about what to focus on uh, when you're practicing and when you're learning Cool. You know, like a, a recent phenomenon in jiu-jitsu is like, because as jiu-jitsu is not that old as a martial art, mm -hmm. I think like, a, especially like being taught to other people, I'd say since the early 90s, it's yeah. like since the UFC, the yeah. UFC has become uh, big, started growing, it, like more people started doing. So it's like mm -hmm. a, a lot of the teaching is still very influenced by whoever is teaching it. Mm -hmm. So now one thing that is happening, it's like a, there is a particular school that has a, a group of students who have developed so quickly. Mm -hmm. Like one of them, I think uh, recently he's been winning everything and is he, he hasn't it doesn't have 10 years of training and is uh, making mm -hmm. it look so easy against people who have 20 years yeah. of training and um, have been like great champions before him. And a lot of that has, has come from very specific deconstruct, deconstructing what are people, like the, his pattern of, of growth. It started with where is everyone else better and where is everyone else not so good? So they focused first on what everyone else was lacking and they became masters at that first in a small amount of time and they started winning. And as they got more and more wins over that, they slowly were working towards their weaknesses. And now it's just like, it's scary because it's good at everything. Yeah, I mean- But it's it, so fast. We, we really have to emphasize like, jujitsu is going through a renaissance yeah. at the moment. Like Iki's right, it was kind of like, this was the way it was always done and this is what happened. And what this one guy in particular with his team has done is questioned everything, can question the whole methodology of coaching mm -hmm. and questioned like why they aren't exploring certain avenues and essentially created a system that has an answer like they really saw it as a game to be beaten 
and they've done that. Now this guy that is winning everything, can I? I it, it's ridiculous. He makes it look like he just walks through people. He is an extremely dedicated individual with an extremely dedicated coach. So there's definitely an alignment mm. of the stars. But what we have seen is is just this rapid acceleration to the point of being better than everyone. There's a what? Oh, sorry, keep going. I think the the moment I got shocked, it's like there's a tournament where it's like a quintet. So I fight against four people. So it's like a one after the other, one after the other until I lose. And he yeah. just fought guys who everyone was been training for at least ten years more than him. Yeah. In less than four minutes, he was just like next, next, next until he got tired and it's 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 absolutely shocking to see it's like oh my god what just happened but a lot of it it's not athleticism athleticism it's not uh, it's mostly he is always one step ahead of the other person when it comes to thinking well i think you you highlight something that's uh that i definitely agree with that there is I definitely think that mastery takes time and so I don't want to, you know, sometimes my messaging gets distorted and that I'm, I'm the guy arguing that, you know, um, you know, that there's there, you don't have to spend time or effort to, to learn anything. But I think my argument more is just that uh, there's often the opposite approach, which is to equate time spent with something as just like that's the that is the only input to the results you get. And clearly that's not true as this example demonstrates. And so for me, often the choice of projects I make are often when I'm dealing with a situation where I feel like the way that people typically approach it just seems wildly inefficient to me. <laughs> and so it's sort of like, mm, this seems like an opportunity to exploit this. Like um, the, the MIT challenge project that I did first was just from this observation of like, university classes you, you know you have to like walk across campus and they're just all at fixed times like everything you don't have any control over it at all and it just seemed like well if you were clever and really dedicated and worked hard you could definitely squeeze a lot more you know productivity out of your time and, and get further in the schedule um, for this and similarly with the language learning experiment i mean uh there are lots of people who do that kind of thing so i don't want to say that i'm like coming up with this but it was something realizing that like the way most people approach learning a language is, you know, you spend like an hour or two, you know, per week in your Spanish class or something like this and you learn words and you don't really have any conversation, you don't really use it. And it was just sort of this observation of, yeah, if you could create a situation where you are only speaking Spanish, you're not speaking in English, you're speaking in it the whole time and you have friends and like situations where you actually have to use it. And, you know, you could easily be putting in, you know, seven, eight hours a day without even thinking about it. And you would be just progressing so much faster, not only because you're putting in more time, but because you are doing things that are super targeted to achieve this kind of practical end that you're in. I think that, you know, not that every single learning goal that you might have can be so easily deconstructed and like, oh, well, this is a way to do it 10 times as fast. But I think I just think these are examples that show that there are at least some situations and, and you suggest that it might be the same with martial arts that this guy is someone who is really deconstructing the sport. And I think especially in a competitive context, you can often take advantage of the fact that like everyone does things the same way. So if you have strengths where other people have weaknesses, you know, you don't have to be better than them at everything. You just have to be better at them at the thing that you beat them with, right? And so that can also be a strategy that you can apply to to learning skills is that, 
you know, if everyone's putting a lot of effort into learning X and Y is comparatively neglected and Y is particularly valuable, then if you get really good at Y, you just have more market opportunities. So you can even think about this applying for a job that, okay, well, everyone has this skill, but very few people have that skill. And if I can get good at that skill, then that makes a big difference. And so I think that's something that's, um, that's worth thinking about when you, when you embark on a project is like, can I change what I'm learning and how I'm learning it in ways that I could, you know, get a result faster or uh, move more quickly through this? I mean, that's you've literally described what happened. Um, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it was um, basically there's, there's um, predominantly submissions in jujitsu work on uh, a choke. So you, you render the person mm-hmm. unconscious or like a joint manipulation, which is typically like an arm bar. You can also attack the legs, like the ankles and the knees. But for some reason in jiu-jitsu, it was just completely ignored. It was seen as like dirty or like not proper jiu-jitsu for whatever reason. And this yeah. one guy, this one coach, basically recognized that and came to the conclusion, like, if no one's attacking it, no one knows how to defend it. So if I create a foolproof system, no one's going to be able to stop it. And then that's literally what he did. And he just completely decimated the competition with it. And it's like, it's just like ridiculous. And now everyone learns leg locks. Like you have to learn leg locks. You know what it reminds me of there? I don't know if you know the, there was an article I was reading was about the history of um, uh, pole vaulting. You know, the sport where you run with the big stick and then you go over it. And people do it in this weird way right now where they kind of, they um, go over it backwards, right? Um, uh, you know, like you don't just run and then you just like jump, like, you know, with yeah. your feet first, you kind of go backwards and sort of like almost head first, you do this really weird thing. And it turns out that was just one guy who just figured out <laughs> actually that's a better way of doing it. Did it, I think in the Olympics, it just like cleaned house and it was sort of like, oh, we've just been jumping wrong the yeah, whole time. Yeah, like yeah. this guy just found a new way of doing it. I mean, it's not always possible to like invent a new technique that that, that has much better results than everything else anyone's doing. I, I, I do have some respect for people who do practice a craft, but I think that it's, it's often the case that um, things can get in a status quo, mm-hmm. right? Where people learn it because that's the way everyone else does it, and there isn't anyone trying to trying to rethink how things might be done. And so, I don't know. Another example that I like to use, which uh, admittedly is a little bit far from this, but um, in when people play video games, there's a whole community of people who do speed running, where they try to beat the video games as quickly as possible. And to me, they're so interesting little case studies because they're extremely well documented. Like everyone has video records of them doing this and there's all these like forum posting and stuff. So if you watch any videos where someone's talking about how someone's improved the record, it's basically you're watching the innovation process at work where like people get hooked into a particular method and then there's the people who are optimizers who are like wringing every bit of juice out of that method possible. And then there's someone else who's like trying a different method, which they can't get to work most of the time or doesn't work very well. And so it, it's it's kind of ignored or marginalized. And then someone can figure out how to get it to work. And then suddenly everyone switches and then that's the new method that everyone's doing because it totally outclasses the old one. And so you can see that, you know, that also applies to this jujitsu phenomenon you're describing but obviously because this is taking place behind the scenes and in tournaments and this kind of stuff it's it's often not as transparent what's going on but i suspect this is true of any kind of competitive domain that you know you see these patterns where 
people will uh, kind of get into a rut, so to speak, where they everyone does things the same way. And uh, it takes someone kind of with that disruptive innovation uh, of a new method or a new technique to, to really capitalize the field. Um, this is so random. I got stuck in a YouTube hole like about yeah, yeah. two weeks ago. And I, you must know this, if you're into the speed running video games, it's a famous racing car one where okay. they're trying to do like a loop and the, the exact thing happened and it was basically like they got it down to a time that wasn't beaten for years and then someone like modified it to put like a speed ramp in and yeah. it, they found a glitch and then they were like if i took the speed ramp away but i managed to clear the slowing like the thing that stopped the brakes to keep the speed going i could maybe like hit it at a certain ang- angle and cut out half the track and beat it and the ex- I can't believe I watched 17 minutes of this, but I was, <laughs> that I was fascinated because it's exactly what you're describing. It's the innovation and the learning mm-hmm. process. Like someone throws it out there and then people pick it up and they do stuff with it. You know, and we're often talking about this in terms of shortcuts, but often it's the opposite. It's that people will neglect something because it just seems way too effortful yeah. to do. So this is outside of speed running, but I was um, reading this book uh, by the sociologist Bruno Latour. And uh, this is an old book and it's about like, he has kind of a radical critique of, of how like science is practiced, but he, he spent two years in this biochemistry lab <coughs> and uh, was just sort of analyzing how are they, how do they actually do science? What are they, when people say they're doing science, what are they actually doing? And one of the things he observes is it was this competition between these two different labs to produce some chemical uh, that was in the brain. And it was important for medical reasons, it involves hormones and stuff. And so the actual details is rather unimportant, but basically you have to realize that like, this is an extremely minute quantities in the brain, like insanely small amounts. And because it was in such trace amounts, it was very, very difficult to get pure samples. So you could get this kind of impure sample. So you don't really know what it is, but you know that if you inject the impure sample, it gets some kind of effect on these lab rats and stuff. And so you can be like, okay, we know it's in there, but we don't know exactly which one it is out of all this kind of goop that we've extracted. And it was so funny because he's talking about how the field sort of reorganized because a group entered that sort of said, no, 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 we need to find out the exact structure of this thing in order to make progress scientifically, uh, which before was just deemed to be prohibitive. And they were like, we need to purify it. And so to purify it, we need to have like, basically, I think they said that they needed something. I think they were using cow or sheep's brains because it's, it's it's in the brain and i think they needed something like two hundred thousand, like just the just the volume of it and the the, the guy's talking about he's using like napoleonic battle metaphors to describe doing this science and it was just it's all about will and like other people don't have the commitment and stuff and it's just interesting for me the high level point of that is that beforehand it was like well you're not going to get the pure substance because it's like in such minute quantities and like you know we're a small lab and maybe we can get you know 100 brains or 200 we're not going to get like 20,000 200,000 um and so it was uh, someone just sort of redefining what the goal was it was like oh we're going to actually do it this thing that you know seems like it's just way too extreme and way too hard we're going to just do it and that's how i think they i think it led to a nobel prize for um for for one of the team members but the point to me is just that like, you, you see that even in these speedrunning communities where they'll be like, oh, we can exploit this glitch, but only works like one out of every thousand times. And you need to get it right three times in a row. So you just have to do it like like a hundred thousand times. So no one does it until one person actually does it. And like, okay, I'm gonna actually commit to doing that. And so to me, I think that can also be a kind of abstract 
metaphor you can apply to a lot of the efforts that you're pursuing that sometimes the way to get ahead is to look at the the kind of the place where people are not being extreme enough like where can you kind of plunge your knife so to speak into this problem where you know everyone else is kind of pussyfooting around and you are going to get straight into the uh, center of it and so I, I mean for a lot of the projects that I've done I've been trying to identify that dimension so if you're like realizing okay well doing a lot of practice for language is important then just like okay I'm not going to speak English for three months it's like okay that's going to be a good way of getting that practice or I want to you know uh, learn these classes quickly or something like this okay I'm going to do you know 10 hours a day where I'm just watching these videos and I know that's not always the advice people want to hear but I think it's an option to keep in the back of your head because often we kind of get stuck because, you know, given the way the problem is defined in front of us right now, we have no way of going forward. We don't know how to start a business. We don't know how to get in shape. We don't know how to do these things. And so it's definitely worth keeping in the back pocket, this idea of like, well, what if I were just like unreasonably extreme on some aspect of it? And that would allow me to sort of break through the kind of barriers that are surrounding the status quo of this uh, this field. Have you ever considered trying poker? Uh, I am a bad poker player, but for a while I got interested in um, the kind of mathematics sort of behind it. And it was because after I did the MIT Challenge Project, I did a little program, I, this is super nerdy of me, but I like the game Scrabble. And I thought, oh, it'd be fun to just make like a computer that could play Scrabble really well. And that, that worked. And so I was like, oh, I also like poker. Let's you manage to make a program that plays poker really well. Turns out that's way, way, way more difficult <laughs> than Scrabble. It doesn't seem that at all at first glance. But um, but I was able to get I was able to get like the basic poker game and uh, a computer that plays uh, worse than I do. But I was not able to reach any particular heights of like I could just put this bot on like you know some poker website and just uh, illegally raking cash. It was definitely definitely any good player would have been able to beat it. But it was something that I, I really liked the kind of intellectual uh, puzzle of it of of thinking about it uh, because. It is a it is a game actually that um, there's some versions of poker that have been solved, but for the most part, it's still a game that um, that we haven't solved yet. Meaning that, like, there there isn't a known like computer program you could make that that would just play the game perfectly. Yeah. Whereas you know, uh, lots of other games we've figured it out already. They're they're trying to work algorithms at the moment to make like a game theory optimum for for poker. Because then, if you can yeah. like screen scrape a, a live tournament and run it, then technically you can play like game theory optimal poker. Mm -hmm. But there's so much. I mean, they. I think they did. Maybe IBM got like a system in place to play against yeah. like live poker players, and they none of them could beat it. They all struggled. They were just. They were saying they've never played against something so aggressive as this game. It was. It was. As, oh yeah, well, there, there was this University of Calgary. I think. I think it was University of Calgary it had a. Um, they they made a um, it, I think it, it played a limit hold'em, uh, not like perfectly, but like um, in the sort of optimal way, and uh, the actual like game strategy file of like given that you've been played this, play this, it's just like a massive document. So it's like I think it's like I don't know like. 100 terabytes or something is this file of like how to play it correctly. So it's definitely not something you can just deduce by like playing it that, oh, obviously I was dealt this, so I should play this way. 
And um, I remember reading a book when I was still like keen on going deeper into this project uh, by I think it's Bill Ackerman. I may be messing up the name, but it was called The Mathematics of Poker. And they just use like very, very simple games that are like much simpler than full poker. Like just given that you have this many streets and you're doing this kind of thing. And it was just insane how complicated it was becoming. Cause it's all one of these things that like, well, I'm gonna do this, but then if he knows that I'm gonna do this, then he's gonna do this. And then it kind of goes this sort of infinite regress. And so you make this more and more complicated strategy as you're going along. And so clearly that's not how, um, if I wanted to get good at playing poker, I don't think that would be the starting point uh, necessarily. Although it is suggestive of, you know, one of the implications of that is that uh, a lot of like the optimal play just seems really aggressive from um, from a kind of naive player standpoint. That was one thing that I learned from there. And I think is even a kind of general life lesson is that if you really understand certain fields, it suggests kind of what we were talking about that um, that you play certain things much more aggressively than um, than people naively do. I think in some ways, this sort of a kind of timid approach to things reflects um, in some ways a, a lower level of understanding of the field because when you're not quite sure what you can do what you can get away with and this kind of stuff you you sort of play it really safe um, but the more you learn about it the more you realize oh no no no, this is really what needs to be done and I'm going to go all out on that um, so this is this is a bit of a bit of a stretch generalizing this idea from poker but I think that was um, definitely something that struck me about it is as a private player playing poker not as a, someone writing a computer program uh i would never do any of the things that, that they were suggesting doing intuitively but that's also probably why i'm i'm not good at poker too you know like uh one thing that happened i think it was a small positive from COVID, at least to our training in jiu-jitsu yeah. is that when we came back to the gym we weren't allowed to spar anymore you had mm. to find one training partner and you had to drill technique yeah And uh, it became pretty clear to us that none of us knew how to drill. We just knew how to get there and just like start fighting like yeah. crazy maniacs. And it's drilling is hard. Like you talk about a lot, a lot about that in your in your book. Like, well, that's the that's the like kind of the reverse side of the coin of what I was saying. Kind of like the direct practice, doing the real thing. The reverse is this drilling like and i think it, it depends on where you are in the stage of the problem like if you are in the beginning of of practicing something then doing it is is often the barrier but when you're doing it all the time then the barrier often becomes the way that you've learned how to do it and so often what you're doing when you're trying to get better is not so much um not so much just a elaboration and making more complex and adding new routines but it's often Mm, I've got this kind of ingrained weakness or I've learned a way to deal with certain situations that like kind of works, but it's not the right way of doing it. Um, I have a funny story about this. So when uh, my friend and I, we were in Spain and I think we'd been there for about a month. And by this point, we were already like we had friends, we're doing things and uh, we're, you know, interacting. I don't want to give the impression we were just still in our house studying at this point. But my friend, uh, he was very like, um lackadaisical about the whole like really studying part he was he wasn't like a big fan of studying and i remember i was going somewhere and he refused to learn how to conjugate things he would just use the infinitive 
uh, of the verb. So like, you know, not tengo, like I, um, you know, I have, but it would just be like, yo tener, like this, which is like <laughs> totally wrong. You know, uh, it, it gets la laughing right now because it's the same <laughs> in Portuguese. It's actually probably a bit worse in, um, in uh, Spanish. I think the, the conjugations are even more important. Yeah. And I think um, that is something that I remember we were eating at a restaurant one day and I was just like, oh, okay, this has gone on long enough. Like you've been, you've been here for a month. You need to learn how to actually say it. And so he, we had like, we had a conversation. I, I went through some of the basics and he did get better. Like he did get over that. So I don't want to create the impression that like, um, that, you know, using the sort of clutch that he was doing of not actually doing the conjugation. My, the lesson is not that that was bad. Um, it was maybe helpful for him in the beginning when he's just trying to communicate at all and have people understand him at all. But it's also sort of obvious to me that past a certain point, um, this stubbornly committing to doing it in a bad way is also bad. And so you, you have this kind of tension sometimes between uh, there's the people who ensure on like total correctness and perfection in the beginning and build up. And then there's the people who sort of, you know, deny the need to do any kind of going back to basics and, and reworking your fundamentals. And I, I sort of lie in, in between. I think that trying to be a perfectionist in the beginning can be an impediment to progress, but definitely as you get further and further in, um, you know, the bad habits that you kind of, may do with in the beginning can definitely be what holds you back in the in the long run that's true i, th I feel like the responsibility for that in jiu-jitsu grows the more yeah. <laughs> sort of like the higher the belts you get and i remember there was this one competition um i was winning but i was a white belt i was pure beginner mm -hmm. and uh then i started doing this technique that i was drilling the whole week midway through the last fight until i get to the final and my coach just screams from the side, don't do the technique, <laughs> just use strength. You're a white yeah. belt, don't think too much, just win this fight. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's kind of no, like but that, that can be an example where you, uh, you, you learn a way of doing it and you suppress your natural way yeah. of dealing with the problem. And I, I think that's inherent in the learning puzzle, right? Um, you know, that it's, uh, it is always this sort of conflict between okay, well, I want to do it the right way, but maybe doing it the right way sort of undermines some of the advantage you had from the, the beginning the part too. Yeah. So, yeah. I have a real world application question. So I've recently sure. um, picked up an injury, which is going to keep me off uh, training for a substantial amount of time, mm -hmm. maybe a month, maybe a bit more. And everyone says, oh, you can do some studying. You can, you can you know, watch some videos, do some, some tutorials. It won't be the same as, as um, mm -hmm. doing jujitsu, but how effective would you think that is? And have you got any tips for me to think about how I can effectively at least mitigate some of the training with some study? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm not anti-studying. I think that uh, study is, is very beneficial um, for lots of things. So again, in this specific martial arts case, it's kind of hard for me to say just because my lack of domain experience, it makes it hard for me to suggest exactly what would be beneficial for you but i think there is often a place for reflective engagement in what you're doing so you know uh you could be on stage giving a speech but you could also be watching a video of yourself giving a speech and noticing things that you do and analyzing what you need to do or you could be 
looking at examples. So, you know, if I want to be a better writer, obviously you got to write, but I do a lot of writing. So one of the things that can really help me if I want to be better as a writer is to read other writing kind of in a self-conscious way of what are they doing? How are they accomplishing what they're trying to do with storytelling or presenting facts or even just how they construct sentences and things like this. And so that was something that I, I did a lot when I was starting writing my book was that I'd already spent a lot of time writing. So it wasn't that I, you know, I need more practice writing, but it was that I'm trying to accomplish something that's a little different from what I'm used to writing. And so how can I, how can I see how other people that they're doing it really well, what are they doing? And so for me, that was a big part of it. I would be, you know, reading other books and noticing um, like how much time do they spend on certain things or what do I like about this book? What do I not like about this book? And that led to a lot of um, insights that I think I, I would have, it would have been hard to learn those just through trial and error. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I found that kind of surprised me a little bit is that I'm used to thinking about if I'm going to be talking about something that I need to give the best possible example. So if I'm trying to illustrate a concept, I need to find the best possible example of that concept. And when I was reading a lot of books that I found uh, very exciting and interesting, it, it often amazed me how they did not follow that principle, that these were actually, like I can think of better examples of the concept they're illustrating than the ones they actually used. And that um, kind of came to me as a sort of idea that, oh no, the principle here is that uh, it's better to have a good story than a good example in a lot of situations. It is better for the story to be interesting and memorable and make the person want to read it. And you have to kind of like stretch it a little bit or sort of work on it to, to show how it connects to this point you're trying to make than to have like a super crystal clear example that's just boring as, as, as wood, you know, and no one wants to read it. Um, or similarly, I, I remember reading books that were written by academic authors that were making kind of big idea points. And in my head, when I read the book, I thought, oh, well, they're citing all this research and they're so scientific and scholarly and like, I want to be more like that. And I would read the book a second time with sort of an eye for form. And I would be noticing how sparse the citations were. There actually isn't that many citations in the book that the person is what I thought they were making as scientific statements were a lot of their opinions or a lot of just maybe not their opinion that's uninformed, but just kind of, I'm not pointing to this particular paper as proof of my point. I'm just sort of saying, you know, in my role as a such and such, this is true and I'm just stating it. And so these were interesting for me because uh, I think there is an eye for um, observing other people and learning through example that is something that it's not the same as doing, but it can be quite valuable because that ability to dissect and uh, analyze and think about it is just often, it, it competes too much with what you actually need to do to perform in the real situation. But again, as I said, it's very easy to get in a situation where you're just watching endless YouTube videos and you're not actually doing it. So we have to understand where this is coming <laughs> in, in the process, of course. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Cool. Well, Scott, this is an amazing chat and uh, we're super glad. I think uh, so far uh, I've walked the slack line and I'm <laughs> I feel happy about your book because <laughs> it's been oh, a lot of fun. You. And uh, usually we leave a space this time to... Is there anything you'd like our audience to learn more about you? Um, 
Yeah, well, anyone who's interested can come to my website at scotthm.com. I've got over a thousand articles, um, you know, uh, Instagram, Twitter, at scotthyoung. Um, and also, if you want to uh, get the book, Ultra Learning, uh, Amazon, Audible, if you're not sick of listening to me already, you can uh, get the book and you can hear me talk for another six or seven hours about these concepts in a little bit more detail. If I'm correct, I think you also have a course, right, uh, on learning. I do. I do. So on my website, we have multiple courses. Um, one of them is, is Rapid Learner. And I, you know, I highly recommend it if you're really interested in kind of going deep and understanding a lot of these ideas, because, you know, I'm able to get into a lot of the detail and specifics that I think is really important for being able to implement this, um, as opposed to just a sort of a high level idea. Um, and but I, I generally recommend, though, that people, if you're interested in maybe signing up for a course to you know, go to the website, read the free articles, you know, obviously, uh, I've put in a lot of content there as well. So be sure to check it out. And, um, and you can explore that first. Cool. That's amazing. Well, listen, my man, thank you so much for taking the time out to come talk to us. We've really enjoyed it. And uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you so much, man. All right. Thank you for having me. Cheers.